Hey, Dave, I was thinking the other day, remember after we did our concerts, after Murph left, we started hanging out at people's homes a little bit. Some of the people that we met at concerts and people that we had in our English club stuff through through Mike. Yeah, it was it was when things were winding down. We had been rock stars for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And so then we're just we're doing like a much more normal like one-on-one just going to people's houses for dinner and hanging out. Yeah. Yeah. A girl who we met at a concert, a, a young teenage girl. I want to say she was like 12 or 13 maybe. Uh-huh. And uh she invited us to her house for dinner. Very very like sweet, you know, innocent thing like this kid wants us to come over for dinner and meet her mom. Yeah. And so we went over. Yeah, that yeah, I was thinking about that the other day. That was such a, a weird experience. I remember we went over and we met her mom. Her mom was really nice. She had a, another one of her friends from school over there and we all had dinner together. I think the food was good. I don't remember anything weird about the food or anything, but No, it was delicious. It was it was a really garlicky carrot salad, I remember. Ah, okay. After we had dinner, I remember it got dark and the girl mentioned that she had to walk her friend home. Right. Or or maybe the mom told her like, "Hey, why don't you why don't you walk your friend home? She shouldn't be out in the dark." Which is kind of strange because then the girl would need to walk back to her home in the dark. But whatever. <laughs> and we didn't question it. Yeah, we didn't question it. We were just like, "All right, whatever." So so she went off to go and and the mom said, "Hey, while we're waiting for her, let me show you some family photos." You remember that? Yeah, which was a common thing in Russia. People would have like a yeah. shoebox of photos or an album and they'd take them out and show us the photos and and it was always yeah. really cool. You'd see like like their Soviet army photos and things from the old Soviet days. And yeah. Always really interesting stuff. Or like when Fat Mormon visited Florida for the one time in his life. That was all he ever showed us, those photos of him in Florida. At <laughs> America. At Zdorova. At Zdorova. Yeah, well, I remember, I remember you and I were sitting together on the couch, and she was over on a chair on the other side of the room. And we've got the stack of photos in our hand, and we're flipping through them, and... I think I think I've got them in my hands and I'll I, I'd get it and I would pass one over to you and then I'd pass you the next one and so I'd be looking at them and then you're looking at them. And it was all normal stuff, like you said. But then all of a sudden, right after yeah. those cute pictures, then there's this picture of the mom who's sitting across from us just in lingerie. <laughs> I kind of look at it and look up at her and and think, okay, maybe this one accidentally got in here. This is her. This is her yeah. private ones. Whatever. All right, I'll hand it off to Dave yeah, quick. Whoops. And then so I hand it off to you. But there's another one underneath it, and and then another one, and another one, and then I start going two or three at a time to get through these. And I think we realized this wasn't an innocent photo sharing session. She purposefully wanted to show us her photos, and I think we realized that when she looked at us, smiled, and said. Erotica, yes? In 2003, we moved to Russia together, and it changed us in a permanent way. We learned to survive the snow, to drink vodka, and to beat ourselves in the bathhouse. We discovered a land of poets and philosophers, of ancient mysteries and modern transformations. It was an entirely different world. Ever since we left, we've wanted to share this great country with others. Consider this podcast our love letter to Russia. I'm David. And I'm Grant. Welcome to Season 2 of To Russia With Love. <laughs> yeah, that... Uh... Those photos, man. There were there was some. She had some uh, a hell of a, a selection of poses <laughs> in those photos too. Yeah, yeah. Like there was some spread eagle ones, and and there a lot of them were sort of like you know leaning to the side. It reminds me of in Seinfeld when when George does a sexy photo shoot in his tidy whities with <laughs> yeah. Kramer. Oh yeah. And he's like, I think there was there was one of her looking at the camera and kind of doing like a tiger claw, like a. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. We were just so uncomfortable, like. Like trying to flip past these, and she's just smiling at us, and like, they just kept coming and coming. Yeah, that was that was definitely one of the more awkward moments we had. Very awkward. So today, today we're talking about erotica. Yes, and um, for for those of you <laughs> who need to know this, this is this is probably uh, a not safe for work episode, but we're going to be talking about sex, and um, most importantly, though the the attitudes towards sex, the erotica, pornography, and how openly is sex treated in not just in Russia, 
and through our experience at that, but just in our general culture as well. And uh, at the end of the episode, we've got a really cool story from my buddy Kirk. Yeah. Kirk Faulkner is going to be joining us. We've got an interview with him. And he has a great story about boners on a train. <laughs> and so uh, hang in there toward the end because we, we really want to hear about Kirk's boner. That, that sounds like a, uh, a movie title, Boners on a Train, starring Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah, snakes on the plane. It, same same difference. Same but, thing. But yeah, stay tuned for stay tuned for Kirk's boner. And if you haven't put in your earbuds now that we said boner about five times, put them in now <laughs> again. We don't want to get angry letters from you later. Yeah. So please do not complain if you're not down with a little bit of lewd talk. Maybe check out another episode. Yeah. There you otherwise, go. Uh, otherwise we're going to launch into it. We're talking about erotica. Yes. Yes. Uh, we've mentioned this before, but when we moved to Russia, it was kind of a time, kind of an in-between time. Um, it had been uh, over a decade since Perestroika, since the, the fall of the communist regime, but uh, things were still a little bit crazy. And where we lived, people called it kind of the Wild West. It almost felt like anything goes. And we kind of had an experience, our first impressions with sex in Russia was kind of odd. There were always um, magazine kiosks on on the corners with blatant pornography right out up front. And I'd never I'd never seen something like that before. Of course, I'd always go into the liquor store in California and, and their magazines would be back behind the counter and you could see, you know, Penthouse or Playboy or whatever, but those were always covered up. But in Russia, none of those were covered up. Yeah, you'd you'd sneak a you'd sneak a peek in the liquor store or or sneak into the the back room at Blockbuster and look at the videos back there. <laughs> but yeah, it was always it was always hidden somewhere. Yeah. And here it was it and it was always old women selling them too. It was these these like sweet old babushki sitting on the street corner. Yeah. And they had these magazines like Votak was a, a popular one. It was called Votak, which means like that's how it is. That's how it is. Or take a look at this. <laughs> and uh <laughs> and you would cuz it was you just have like full frontal nudity and right on the street corner. Yeah, imagine imagine your grandma selling those on the street corner to whoever. And speaking speaking of grandmas, I remember that first week when we were living there when we moved into Mama Nadia's apartment, she took us out grocery shopping, which was an experience in itself. There was a little little farmers market that we went to where people just pulled their vans up to the curb and opened it up in the back and you could buy eggs or vegetables. I remember going over to the meat truck, the meat van, <laughs> and, um, and yeah, yeah, with just not for refrigerated or anything, just yeah. straight from the butcher shop. We're straight from the butcher shop, and I and I remember we bought some like salt pork or something. She made those great potatoes. Oh, remember yeah. that? Oh my god! Oh, that was so good. But we walk over to her like baby hens following or baby chicks following their hen mother, and uh, she goes and buys a couple pounds of this meat, and we're looking in the in the van. And I was amazed that it wasn't refrigerated. And that's what I was checking it out. But I'm looking in there and I look up on the walls of the van and there was uh, all these pornographic pictures like taped up there, like the inside of a middle schooler's locker or something. <laughs> yeah, it was it was surreal. It was like something from a serial killer movie because it's yeah. this bloody van yeah. and then just like naked pictures. It was just like every base you know, drive in humanity, all the violence and sex all thrown together. I look at the pictures and then I look at the meat we're buying and I look at the guy cutting the meat and I'm thinking like, this is not a combination that I'm interested in right now. <laughs> Let's get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> it's like something from a, a cannibal corpse music video. Yeah. Like a black metal music video. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it was it was ubiquitous though. Like even we'd go to Jiguli Pizza, one of our favorite pizza places. Yeah, and uh, there'd be there'd be softcore porn playing on the TV, and and there'd be like families eating pizza there, and yeah, and the TV would have like a like a Red Shoe Diaries episode or whatever, but you'd see full nudity on the TV. Yeah, it just felt like sex and nudity was just in our face all the time. Like not even looking for it, but it was just right there. So that was our first impression, which really it went along with one of these common Western stereotypes of of Russia, modern Russia, I should say, and of Russian women as this this stereotype of the hypersexual Russian women, which we talked about a lot in our Women's Day episode. Yeah. Coming in with some of those preconceived 
notions and then seeing a lot of sexual images everywhere, it, it reinforced our idea that, oh, this is just a place where anything goes. Right. Yeah. Like that was that was the the feeling we got. Mm-hmm. And I remember when we when we, we got to know the those interpreter girls, Marina and all of them, and, and we became really good friends with them. And, and they told us about how as teenagers, they would take modeling classes and charm school. Remember all of that, too? Like that, that, that was a little bit different. And we did talk about that some in in the women's episode. That kind of thing was it seemed common when well, then our, our Russian teacher, Mikhail Sergeyevich, Mike. Mm-hmm. would tell us all about his sexual exploits and oh, yeah. say he was tired of. He'd say, I am so tired of this. My <laughs> wife is number 100. Yeah. He'd show us porn on his TV, and he'd try to solicit his high school students for us. and Yeah. And so, like, it just seemed like this place where there was no rules. That was our impression that we got. Yeah. But what's interesting is as we learn more about the real Russia— and then about Russia's present and Russia's past, the Soviet past, and then the much more distant past of the Tsarist days and then the pagan days before Christianity. Uh, we learn that, that Russia is actually much more complex when it comes to sex. There's more nuance. Yeah, a lot more nuance. It's a history of of nuance, of, of extremes at different times, uh, just like the history of the U.S. and a lot of other countries. It, it's gone from one extreme to the other but also a, a lot of just the rules are very different. The way sex has been treated, it's a totally different world, yeah. different from Western Europe and different from the U.S. And that's what we want to get into because that's the whole point of appreciating another culture in the first place. Yeah. You know, if you're able to suspend judgment for a minute and just look at it as a different way of looking at things, a different world, different attitudes. And so if if there's one thing we want you to take away from this, it's that Russia and sex, it's not good or bad or better or worse. It's different. It's a different world. We're going into uncharted territory for you Western listeners who are not super familiar with Russia. Definitely some uncharted waters. So when we look at at Russia's history of how sex has been treated, it's very complex. Starting off in the pagan days, uh, there are rock engravings and records from up to 5,000 years ago that show how sex, sexual symbols and sexuality they were used um, in ritual ways in Russian paganism, hmm. like they were in, in paganism most, in most of the world. Yeah. Fertility, sex gods. Yeah, sex gods, fertility rituals, which, interesting side note, a lot of the the Bible verses in, in uh, the Old New Testament that mention sex, they're actually referring to pagan sex practices. Yeah. So most of the sex mentions of sex in the Bible it's not condemning certain sex acts per se, but is actually about the fact that these sex acts were part of a pagan ritual to worship a pagan god and yeah. try to bring in that pagan god's yeah, favor. Yeah, in, in the context of sexual worship. So we see this in Russia. Uh, 5,000 years ago, there's, there's a, a rock carving that shows a Siberian man uh, on skis trying to have sex with an elk. So <laughs> Man, he must be tall. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yeah, good for him. So this this went on for thousands of years in, in the ancient Slavic uh, nations. Then Russia is Christianized. Kievan Rus is Christianized fairly late for compared to Western Europe. Yeah. Where Western Europe, uh, I mean, Constantinople comes and Christianizes the Roman Empire officially. That's like the 300s, I think. Yeah. Early, and early uh, on. very early on. And really plug Christian symbolism into this empire that already existed as an established authority. All I have to say in Western Europe, I feel like the church had a much more firm hold on power as an institution over people's lives, as opposed to Russia, where Christianity didn't get there till I think the eight or nine hundreds. So the first missionaries, they're trying to Christianize Russia. And and of course, they describe these sex rituals as devilish and evil, but they really picked their battles when it came to Christianizing Russia. They were trying to be very realistic and trying, like, really focusing on getting people baptized, but not as fixated on sex as the Western Catholic Church was in Western Europe. Yeah. Well, if I remember correctly, I, th- I think 
priests in the Orthodox tradition, they're they're allowed to be married, right? Yeah, I, I believe that's anywhere in the Eastern Rite. Any orth, Orthodox church, the priests yeah. can get married, and and most of them do. Yeah, which is different from the the Roman Catholic tradition, where priests are are celibate, are supposed to be celibate, not able to marry. Exactly. So the church they they couldn't they knew they couldn't just eradicate all these pagan customs. So they were just focusing on the on the major issues. Mm. Eventually, a, a kind of priestly class of well, the priests and monks and everybody the church develops in Russia that that keeps the sacred writings alive and the the songs. And so there's this division now between that high culture of the church and the low culture of peasants, where sexuality is a very normal part of everyday life. Yeah, right around the same time you mentioned, like the ninth century, there's a there's a document that's one of the one of the first testimonies about sex in Russia. And I got this from uh, that language book I've got. Remember the Dermo book? Yeah, about the Russian curse words. Yeah, about Russian curse words. There's a whole section on here about making love. It's called love making Russian style. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and, and he has a quote in here from the year 922. It's a long quote, so I'm just going to paraphrase, but it's from Ahmed Ibn Fadlan, an Arabic trader who recounted his, his interactions with Russian traders who would come down. And basically he says that they would come down from Russia with their goods and a part of their goods were slaves and, and women, um, I think as, as sex slaves or, or to come and marry, marry off to their, their trading partners. And they would come down and set up their camp. And the first thing they would do is they'd go pray to their, their God of trade and, and ask that, that, uh, they'd present all of their wares and ask that the God would bless them and that whoever they sell with would take the price that they offer and all that type of stuff. And then they would go and put it all out for, for the people to come and buy. But then he goes on to say that as they, as they did that, the the traders would be there next to their girls and they would be enthralled by their beauty. And it says here, they'd be, began to copulate with her himself. <laughs> and uh, so wow. all these Russian traders end up making love with like right, their slaves. Right there in the market. Yeah, that's what it that's what it says here, and and it would and it sounded like basically like the next guy over in the next stall would kind of see what's going on, and he would get a little bit aroused, and so he would he would do the same thing. Basically, they says when the people would come to buy, these Russian traders couldn't pull themselves away from the girl, and I don't know if that meant like <laughs> like in the act of sex they couldn't just stop, or if they fell in love with these girls and didn't want to to sell them off or something. That that was right around the same time. And you, you you talked a little bit about the spiritual class, and this is more of like the trading class around that same time in the ninth century. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. I mean, it at least on a superficial level, it's it feels like a more healthy attitude in the sense that that the people who never got married or had sex or did anything it was a special sacred decision that they made that was it was not expected that everybody should follow that yeah in some parts of the christian tradition that eventually turned into a, a pathologization of sex and even of marriage for some people but the idea of monks and nuns and of anybody being celibate it's the idea is not to say like hey everybody should be celibate and you guys just you can't control yourselves it's that you know monks and nuns are a special group of people who are devoted to the sacred and to prayer and and that's why they give up a lot of earthly pleasures that are they're not bad that are normal things the rest of us do. Yeah. That goes for the western tradition too. One one interesting difference though at the time and this is you know like why we say that things are nuanced and complicated is that at this time the way the body was depicted in art in Russia versus the west is really different. Okay. So in 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 western Europe like even late middle ages and especially in the renaissance you have even sacred art depicting biblical scenes, Jesus, uh, and human flesh is really present. Like on, the genitals are the only part that are covered up in that Western art. Yeah. Where in Russian I, Russian icons, and maybe this is because icons are, are such a sacred form for the Russian tradition, the face is the only part that is uncovered. Everything else of the person is totally covered up. Or even even in the Western art, not 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 even the genitals being covered. You think of you know, the statue of David, right? Everybody posts a little fig leaf on it when they take a selfie of themselves in front of it. <laughs> We're still embarrassed by David's wang. Yeah. 
But that's interesting. The like Russian icons. Yeah, I, I can't think of any other part of the body besides the the face and the hands and possibly the feet in any of the any of the pictures that I've seen. Now, the interesting thing is in that the sacred art, that's the case. But in day to day life, in in all of Russia's history, nudity, non-sexual nudity has been a much more normative thing than than it was in the West. Yeah. Like in the banya, in the bathhouse. Yeah. You go in and, and everybody's naked and that's nobody thinks of that as lewd or or even as sexual. It's just that's what you do. You're all in the bathhouse together. Yeah, it's the public public bathhouse. You just gotta go and it's part of it's a part of the bodily functions. You go and you wash wash your body. It wasn't it isn't sexualized, at least to some extent, but it was more normalized. Very, very different nuances to nudity and sex. Uh, and that carries on, you know, we get up into the Tsarist days now, 1700s, 1800s. Catherine the Great, who who I have a soft spot for because she brought my people over from Germany to Russia. Yep. She was known to have a huge sexual appetite. I guess records say that she would have sex six times a day. And she said it helped her relieve her insomnia. Hmm. There are stories about her having fantasies about making love to her horse. Okay. I'm not going to go into that. I don't know what was going on there. The fact is she was open about her her sexual dreams, which like nobles and, and royalty in the West, it's hard to imagine them admitting to anybody that they had a sexual dream, period, let alone one involving a horse. Yeah. So uh, so she was very open about all this stuff. Of course, you know, some of her rivals, they might have made up some of this stuff to try as a smear campaign against her. Sounds like there was some sex shaming maybe going on, too. <laughs> yeah, with the, the, the horse stories may, may have been part of that. Yeah. But she had a lot of lovers, basically. And it was a common knowledge that she, uh, yeah, she had many, many different sexual partners and and apparently not many attempts to try to cover that up. Another interesting thing at that time, too, even earlier on, there's a lot of records about very open and very normal homosexuality being a normal thing in Russia. Okay. And so visitors from Western Europe, they were shocked by this. Yeah. By that point, we're talking like 1500s, 1600s, homophobia had really taken root in Western Europe. And so these people from from Austria and other countries in West, from England uh, went to Russia and observed, they noticed that there were people who were openly homosexual and saw nothing wrong with it, and they were just outraged, just shocked by that. Hmm. An Austrian royal counselor, Sigismund von Herberstein, who uh, he wrote about that in 1517 and 26. And then there was an English poet, George Turberville. He was in Moscow in 1568, and there was uh, a lot of bloody violence in Moscow. Turberville, he was more shocked by the open homosexuality than by the violence. He was like, oh, yeah, violence killing people. I'm fine with that. But two, two men together. Oh, my God. So for these several centuries, that apparently there was, uh, it was a very normal thing in Russia. And it wasn't until later, with especially with Peter the Great, who wanted to Europeanize Russia. Yeah. He really imported homophobia into Russia from Western Europe. Hmm. So, But when you look at the older roots of Russia, I mean, that's a fairly – the idea of condemning LGBT people – is a fairly new thing to Russia. And it was really Peter the Great who wanted, he was saying, hey, we need to be like people in, in Italy and in France and England. They're better than us, so we need to act like they do. Yeah. So that kind of started some of the, the sex shame. And uh, I mean, it's not the right word, but the puritanical view of sex a little bit in the country. Yeah, very Western thing brought into Russia, which is interesting because modern conservatives... A lot of times they overlap with people called Slavophiles who are big on saying, no, Russia needs to be Russia's own identity and follow Russia's own way yeah, of doing yeah. things. And we, sh we shouldn't follow the West. We shouldn't do things the way the West does. Well, guess what, pal? The whole homophobia thing, that's, that's a Western Europe thing huh. that was brought into Russia by other people. Yeah. When you get into the 1700s, 1800s, you, you start to see a lot more conservative attitudes toward sex in general, but even the reasons for those attitudes are different than they were in Western Europe. Hmm. And a lot of them were actually influenced more by left-wing radical revolutionaries, democratic movements in, in the 19th century, influenced a lot by Western Europe also. So for a lot of these progressive uh, left-wing movements, they saw erotic literature or erotic art as undesirable, not because sex is bad per se, but they saw it as connected to bourgeois decadence, huh. 
connected to like upper middle class bourgeois society. So yeah, you had some voices in the Orthodox Church who would condemn anything erotic or openly sexual, but just as much you had people who did it for political reasons. And because there was this left-wing culture for a lot of Russian aristocrats and upper middle class people, it was considered just vulgar, unesthetic, or politically incorrect. Yeah, that, that kind of reminds me, and it feels very similar to some of the the evangelical Western American culture that we kind of grew up in, right? where there's this kind of ideal or this idea that sex is bad and we don't talk about it, we don't do anything about it, but really underneath and kind of as a undercurrent, there's a little bit of uh, rebelliousness when people do talk about sex. I mean, like silly, silly little things that, you know, it's just kind of like a little joke. It's not meant to be necessarily pornographic, but it does kind of poke a little bit to this sexualization of literature and sexualization of, of the culture underneath this ideal of, oh, we don't, we don't have sex. We don't talk about sex. What is sex? What are you talking about? That's nothing. We don't do that here. But these things are always underneath. And I think you said earlier, like you could find, you find these things like written in graffiti on the bathroom stalls and stuff like that. Oh, anywhere in the world. I read somewhere the earliest bathroom graffiti was in ancient Rome, like in an ancient Roman toilet. They found graffiti uh-huh. written on the wall and it was something and it was something sexual. I don't know if it was about someone's mother or somebody had huh. sex with someone, but somebody wrote in Latin uh, some sexual graffiti. Yeah, on I, believe toilet. I believe it. I believe it. That's a little bit of of. I think just general culture around the world, you, you just can't really get, get away from it. You know, we have this Puritan heritage. Uh, 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 the United States was in some way created by Puritans leaving Europe to create their own utopia. So that's kind of one of the founding myths that we have. And so this, this sexual ambiguity, this sexual, I don't even know what you say, it's suppression. It was a part of what our country was founded on. Yeah, and I mean, there's stories of the those first Europeans being outraged and horrified by how open Native people were about their sex lives. They just they couldn't believe it. Yeah, or even not wearing as many clothes as they did, not covering up. That was seen as right as a sin, as a as an affront to God and man. Now, what's and what's interesting there in Western culture and in in U.S. history is even at those most conservative points the. Puritan times, then later on, colonial days and whatever else. And there are these times that that I think a lot of conservative voices look back at as the good old days. And, oh, that was back when nobody talked about sex and nobody told dirty limericks or, yeah. or whatever. You know, whatever whatever period they want to idealize, the Victorian days of the long dresses or Ricky and Lucy sleeping hmm. in separate beds and when TV never had married couples sleeping together. And, but when you look at history, though, stuff was – it was happening at the time, too – not only was sex happening, obviously, but but the it seems like the more repressed the culture is, the more perverse the sexual th- practices hmm. are happening in the shadows and in you know in back alleys yeah. in the shadows. I mean, even in those very early colonial days, you've I mean you've got people who owned other human beings and would rape their slaves, like Thomas Jefferson. And that's what you're talking about when you talk about perverse sex acts. We're talking about rape and violence um and domineering yeah, yeah. We're not, and things like that. We're not talking about the the wrong position or 69 or something like that <laughs> yeah. that we are prudes and don't approve of. Yeah. We're talking like objectively sick things like rape and violence. The abuse of another human being without their without consent types of types of perversion. And then of course at the same time as all this our, our capitalism could not exist with sexual without sexualizing everything. Hmm. I mean, advertise, and this has been the case for a huge part of the 20th century, using women's bodies to sell everything, sexualizing like Ovaltine and shampoo and and all, any product you want to sell. So we've got these we got these extremes, um, just like you see, you know, in Russia's history, you see different extremes and different this interplay between very conservative voices and tendencies, and then the opposite. The point is, yeah, sex and culture it's complicated wherever you look. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think a little bit of advertising you talk about, and when we were there, obviously advertisers were using sex to sell 
everything. You know, we, we were seeing uh, nudity on TV for, for everything. But when you look back and when I think of during the Soviet times with propaganda and stuff, it felt like at least the government push portraying sex or portraying sexualization wasn't really a part of the propaganda machine. I didn't know. I didn't feel like I saw that, you know, you, they would have posters of men and women wearing their coveralls in an iron factory or whatever. And it wasn't like you've got a guy without a shirt on and his abs are sticking out and, and the, the ladies right. wearing a bikini or anything. <laughs> it was a little bit more asexualized or gender wasn't that big a deal in the propaganda, it seemed. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about sex during the Soviet period, Dave? So the one phrase everybody comes back to, it's an apocryphal phrase, but it's the phrase, we have no sex in the USSR. Hmm. Or nobody has sex in the Soviet Union. The, the apocryphal story is that someone... Someone said that during a teleconference between Leningrad and Boston in the perestroika years. Actually, what she said was there was no sex on television. The point is, though, that phrase lodged itself in popular culture because a lot of people huh. felt like that was yeah. the attitude during Soviet days. They felt like the attitude was nobody ever has sex. You don't talk about it. You Obviously, you don't show it on TV or movies. In Soviet Russia, babies came from the stork. Right? <laughs> the communist stork. Yeah. Yeah. It's a red stork. Handing out babies to everybody. Everybody gets a baby. <laughs> everyone Equal <laughs> amounts of babies for everyone. No discrimination. Uh, now, it's interesting how that, that became the case in, in the Soviet Union, because in the early days of the revolution, they were really big on liberalizing a lot of practices related to sexuality and really ahead of their times hmm. compared to Western Europe and the States. In 1922, they legalized homosexuality in Soviet Russia. And that's remarkable because it was still illegal to do any sexual act for a man to do it with another man in Britain, in the United States. England didn't legalize homosexuality till 1967. And there were still limitations. It didn't totally get legalized until the year 2000. Wow. Same, that, same, still the case at the time also in the U.S. and Spain, Canada, Germany, Austria, tons of Western countries. But the Soviet authorities, they're big on releasing all of these legal restrictions on sexual practices. So sexual freedom, emancipation of women, that was all seen as part of uh, the struggle for, for freedom, for equalization. Yeah, equalizing everything. Laws related to divorce were loosened up. Divorces could be obtained with no problem. And that remained until good old Stalin comes into power. Then he mm. starts reversing a lot of those changes. He went back to a lot of the imperial Russian policies under the Tsars hmm. of the last few generations of Tsars. So in the 1930s, he actually he banned, abor he banned abortions for a while. He prohibited homosexuality in 1933. He made divorces a lot more complicated and that remained the case even up to the 1960s. If you wanted to get a divorce, you had to announce it in Vichyrna Moskva, in the newspaper. Hmm. Like only really powerful people could do it quietly without announce, like shaming yourself, saying, hey, I'm getting a divorce. Wow. Put the scarlet A on my house. Even condoms were sometimes hard to get. They were available in pharmacies, but people didn't like to discuss them. A lot of men would go in to buy condoms and they would whisper. They'd just say, give me a bag, please. <laughs> Or they'd ask for aspirin and wink, they'd wink at the pharmacist and aspirin was the code huh. word for, for condoms. This hush-hush attitude was, that was the case for a lot of Soviet history. Yeah. And of course, at the same time, the, the opposite extremes are still existing. Yeah. Uh, you remember Mar Marina told us about a neighbor of her, her parents. Uh, do you remember her, that story? About yeah. This really, really sad story. She didn't really get into details, but basically... The neighbor and kind of a friend had like over 30 abortions in her life. Yeah. And I mean, I remember just my jaw dropping hearing that like physically, how could that even happen? I feel like, I feel like that would just wreak havoc on a, a woman's body. Yeah. It sounded like that was normal. A lot of women ended up having, going and getting abortions. She told that story as, I mean, obviously 30 abortions is not a normal thing anywhere, and she told it as as an extreme case, but it reflects this normal culture of a lack of information, obviously, lack yeah. of education. Like yeah. if someone's getting 30 abortions, obviously something went wrong with learning how to not get pregnant. You yeah. Know? And like something's going very wrong with uh, everything leading up to that, the, the whole, all these sexual practices. Yeah. 
and and but that's what happens when there's a culture where people don't talk about it, where a lot of young ladies, especially, do not get adequate sex education. Yeah. Uh, from what I remember reading about during communist times, there wasn't a lot of privacy either. So right. people were people were having sex, people were still having sex, but but nobody talked about it. But you had to do it kind of secretly. And um, I, I remember in in my in this book, the Diarmo book, it talks about a phrase, and I'm gonna I'll read it out. I'll try to do it in Russian, and uh, you can tell us basically what it means, Dave. Yobat vrakom seperskopom. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah, any our Russian speaking listeners are probably laughing too. <laughs> yeah. It's uh so rakum is from rak which is means lobster or crawfish. Crawfish, yeah. So the crawfish position is what we would call doggy style, which is uh the man entering from behind. And uh, so that that was the the normal term for that for a long time just because that's how I guess that's how crawfish have sex, too. I guess so. I've never seen it myself, but take their word for it. Yeah, I can't say that I have either, but my YouTube's going to have some some weird cookies in it after we hang up here. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we... <laughs> and then very what's, curious. And then what's the next the next part of it? So there's the crawfish style. Yeah, so the full phrase is fucking crawfish style with the periscope. Spiriscopum. Now, the periscope refers to these communal Soviet apartments where a lot of families live together in one cramped apartment. And a lot of the time, you'd have a long, narrow hallway leading to that apartment. So when a married couple in that apartment wanted to have sex, they had to have a lookout to make sure nobody was coming down the hallway and nobody would come interrupt them. So the periscope would be, the man would be behind, and the woman would have her head poking out, looking into the hallway, <laughs> and she'd be watching out to, <laughs> to make sure none of the neighbors are coming down the hallway to walk in on them having sex. Yeah. It still doesn't seem like ideal privacy, because the person's still going to see like your naked torso moving in the doorway, but I guess it's, I guess it's better than seeing the whole thing. Yeah, I guess so. I guess maybe if you, if you see them early enough, you can... You can pop your head back in and close the door and get covered up. Yeah. The really interesting thing about how how repressed Soviet culture was about sex is I think a lot of people in the West would never have expected that at the time, especially hmm. in the ni- 1960s and 70s. That's the hippie movement, and, and it was defined by this really sex-positive attitude and free love. I mean, that the hippie communes where everybody got with everybody – and those revolutionary counterculture people in the West, a lot of them looked up to the, the Soviet Union. Hmm. And so they were very, very pro-Soviet, pro-communism a lot of the time. So it's ironic that those same practices that were part of the counterculture in the West, the free love, anything goes attitude in the Soviet Union, they pointed at those practices as a sign of the decadence of the capitalist West. Yeah. And they said, see, that's why that's why capitalism is going to fail, because... They're decadent. They have no controls and no rules. Hmm. So that's ironic. And it's it's also interesting. I mean, Marx never re- didn't really talk about sex. He he talked about power dynamics in marriage. Yeah. But sex was kind of a non-issue for original Marxism. So that brings up this big question of why was this the attitude in the Soviet Union? Yeah. Do you have any any ideas about why that was the case? Well, I mean, we talked a little bit about just the history, you know, even going back 5,000 years and there's Siberian drawings of hunters having sex uh, or trying to have sex with an elk. There's there's going to be <laughs> there's going to be this history that comes along throughout the entire culture and in any way like I mean, sex is a, a normal natural part of the human existence. I I remember, you know, in like elementary school like having fights with, not fights with kids, but, you know, how kids would tease each other and, and, and probably in some ways bully, but there would be talks, you know, about how my dad can beat up your dad or, or, oh, your mom, you know, F your mom or whatever, which was, which was horrible. Right. I remember kids being like, well, my mom doesn't, my mom hasn't had sex, which is <laughs> incredibly ironic as the child of, of the woman who gave birth to him saying, my mom doesn't have sex. Those things are going to continue, you know, throughout. And I'm, I'm guessing uh, historically the Soviet times came right after a time of the imperial rule. And if those were the things that were kind of going on during then, they're going to obviously follow through with the culture in a country that's as big as, as Russia. Yeah. You, you can't control 
every person in in a in a country that size. Yeah, so you've got these the ri- rise and fall of open attitudes and more closed attitudes, but yeah, yeah you're right. The the attitudes were very closed in the in the century leading up to the the revolution. And from people from different cultures that the subcultures within the within Russia, you know, it, it not everybody it's not a homogenous culture. There's going to be people Sure. We've talked about this in other episodes, you know, there's there's people from Christian cultures, Islamic cultures, Jewish cultures, pagan cultures. You you have in the in the east of Russia, you know, influences from the Mongolian empire and the china the the china empire the dynasties out there so you're getting all these influences in a country like russia you know you're not going to be able to to bottle it all up in one way but you, you although they tried and i think that was another aspect of it the authoritarian totalitarian practices of the soviet union i think that i think that kind of happens you see that anywhere you see you see some of the repression uh right now i think in the middle east sexual repression out there in some of these countries that are totalitarian in their authority, you know, telling women what to wear and what not to wear and not to drive cars and different things like that. I think those are, it's a two-pronged thing you're, you're hitting on. Yeah, one part is this older Russian culture that the, the Soviet Union inherited. I mean, a lot of the stuff we think of as Soviet really existed during the Tsar's hundreds of years before them, like sending prisoners to Siberia, like we talked about. Yeah. Attitudes towards sex is a holdover from that. But yeah, you're right. The, whenever there's authoritarian tendencies, it's common for governments to repress some kind of sexuality, of women's rights, reproductive issues. And that's that's universal, like left-wing, right-wing, Christian, atheist, Islamic, yeah. authoritarian governments and uh, communities tend to repress sexual things. Yeah. George Orwell's got a great quote in 1984 about that. Because in it's that dystopian future he's imagining of a totalitarian system. Uh-huh. The government in 1984, it's of Oceania, it's very anti-sex. The young ladies had chastity belts, like red red chastity sashes they wore around their waist. And- yeah. I always saw that as, as a, a sash across, as kind of like a banner, basically saying, like, I'm better. I'm better than you because I don't have sex and I don't think about sex. Right. And it's really interesting that they wore that, you know, as a red, bright banner which in itself implies sex or sexuality. I think I think red is is yeah. one of these colors that has traditionally and always been a a sexual um passionate color. Yeah, passionate color. There's this really cool quote from the book when he's analyzing why that's the case, why the government is so anti-sex. And uh he says there was a direct intimate connection between chastity and political orthodoxy. For how could the fear, the hatred, and the lunatic credulity with the, which the party needed in its members be kept at the right pitch except by bottling down some powerful instinct and using it as a driving force? The sex impulse was dangerous to the party, and the party had turned it to account. Wow, yeah. Very Freudian take on this idea that if you suppress one impulse, it'll come out in other ways. So they're suppressing sex because they need people to be pissed off at the foreigners and the enemy, and we need you ready to go to war. And, yeah. And uh, there's another another quote that I, I couldn't find in the book, but but I remember after Winston and Julia have made love, I think Julia notices, she says, you know, I know why the party hates sex so much, because after you've made love with someone that you actually love, you can't be pissed off. You, yeah. you just feel at peace. You feel at peace with the world, and the yeah. party hates <laughs> someone to feel that way. Huh. That's that's interesting. And then and coming from Orwell in 1984, with so many of the the themes having to do with communism and totalitarianism and and the political climate of the world when he wrote that, that makes right. makes some sense. So when we look at all of that history in Russia, then we come back to the modern age, and come back to these stories that you and I, the things you and I saw, the, the babushkis selling pornography on the streets, the, a lot of sexuality everywhere. I think there's a fairly simple explanation for a lot of that. And that's like you mentioned at the beginning of the episode. We were in the country in 2003 and four. Uh, first time we went was 2002. Mm-hmm. And it was still re- still reeling from perestroika. This is yeah. a country that had, had just fallen apart. And they're still trying to pick the pieces together and figure out what are we as a nation? What kind of system do we have? What is our culture? How do we define it? 
And so it's chaos. Yeah. And chaos combined with a lot of sudden poverty. All of a sudden, millions of people are on the streets. They're desperate for income. Yeah. So on this really basic level, I like any time a country goes through that, you'll see more a rise of people looking for income however they can find it. A rise of women becoming sex workers or being sex trafficked, posing yeah. for the pornography that the babushkir is selling, and the babushkir is selling it because their pension disappeared and they have no source of income. Yeah. What looks like this happy-go-lucky, free-for-all, like, oh, these people are just super cool about sex, and that's why it's everywhere. I think the reality was a little more dark than that. Hmm. It uh, reminds me of a the quote in the, this is in the movie Fight Club, but not in the book. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> it ends with buildings blowing up, and Edward Norton's character looks at Helena Bonham Carter and and he just tells her, you know, you met me at a really strange time in my life, yeah. <laughs> like as he's just blown up a bunch of buildings. I feel like we met Russia at a very strange time in Russia's life when Russia <laughs> was still chaotic and reeling and trying to figure things out. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way to put it. And really, a lot of our a lot of our time and travel out there was at weird times in lives. One last story, and then we'll get to that interview with Kirk. We we went to Estonia. We had a whole episode about our time in Estonia, and that was like a strange time in our lives too. You know, we were finally free. We were we were able to do whatever we wanted to. We would go right buy beers. We would drink. We would just stay up all night. We were kind of partying during that time, and uh, I remember we were eating at McDonald's, which we loved. <laughs> And uh, so much. And it was the three of us. Murph was with us at this time. And some guy yeah. came over to us and, and I'm, I think he was just a, I think he was a drug dealer. He said something like, like cocaine. And we're like, no, no. And then he said Viagra. And we're look at each other and we're like, Viagra. <laughs> we're 21 year old young men. Like we don't need Viagra. And I, I think, I think it was Murph who said it, but he said like, Umanya yist boner say chas. Which, uh, which is kind of the the a mix between Russian and English, basically saying like, I'm, I'm, I'm doing all right. I've, in fact, I've got a boner right now. <laughs> and so we were in a weird time in our lives. Speaking of boners, we've got this interview that you had with Kirk, and and he tells about a very strange boner experience that he had. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Let's 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 get to it. Let's uh, take a listen to. My interview with my buddy Kirk Faulkner and his story of the boner on the train. Если девочка хочет, значит, что ты делаешь все правильно. Если девочка хочет, значит, значит ты пацан, ей реально понравился. I'm here with my buddy Kirk Faulkner in San Diego, a good friend, brilliant guy, also an ex-missionary to Russia. He was a Mormon missionary in Russia uh, around the same time as we were there. And uh, had a lot of very similar experiences. And Kirk, you had an experience that was kind of eye-opening uh, for sexuality in <laughs> Russia <laughs> and for your own sexuality. Really leaning into the Russia with love part of this, right? <laughs> yeah, we're focusing on the love part. Okay, nice. And, and you had an experience on a train that, uh, you know, you got a good feel for attitudes toward sex from a certain sector of the population. I actually have a funny story about possibly the worst mistake, the worst decision I made the entire time I was out there on like revealing that I was an American. Um, okay. I was on this train. So I, the, in, in the Mormon mission, you get transferred from city to city. And I got transferred from Omsk, which was the westernmost city I, I was in, to Novos, or to Ulan Ude, which was the easternmost city I was in. And yeah. the train ride was about 56 hours nice. from one city to the other on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And uh, me and some – I was, I was with three other missionaries, and I was a district leader at the time, which there's kind of a paramilitary organization, like hierarchy <laughs> in the right. Mormon missions. And so I was the leader of this group. And I was, I, was, I was the one who had been on his mission the longest. I could speak Russian the best. And um, you're a wise senior. I was a wise all, senior. All of 19 years of age. Which is awesome because I'm the one who makes the decision that almost gets people killed in this. <laughs> um, and so once a week, Mormon missionaries have something called a district meeting. It's just to like a little get together where you talk about your goals, like like how much you know converting you're going to do. And you like read like some scriptures and you sing a hymn and you say a prayer together. And it's just kind of like a little mini uh, church meeting. Yeah, right. 
and we were missing our, our district meetings because we were going to be on this train for this whole thing. And so just to be the most obedient missionary I could, I'm like, well, we're going to have a district meeting in our little train car. God's still watching me. Yeah. And just I felt like everybody was feeling a little um, shook by like being moved around and like maybe a little displaced. And so to make things better, I'm like, you know, for the hymn, let's sing God Bless America. Perfect. Yeah. What could go wrong? (laughs) (laughs) On a Russian train singing God Bless America. So one thing you need to know about Russian trains is all, all there is to do on Russian trains is drink. That's all anybody does. They just drink vodka and get drunker and drunker and drunker. And we weren't drinking oh. vodka. Well, I mean, that's not true. You can drink beer, too. You can drink beer. What You know, at the time, when I was there, Russians had just started classifying beer as alcoholic. Yeah, we, we came across that this concept of beer as almost... Like, it's yeah, like, like a soda. soda. Yeah. yeah we, and they we, sold it in two-liter bottles. And like, oh, those were delicious. <laughs> we, met, we met a guy with a huge beer belly, and, uh, and Grant told him oh we don't drink because yeah. we weren't drinking at the time and then and they go and get the beer yeah yeah They're like oh you said, don't drink oh great here's some beer <laughs> yeah he said oh I, I don't drink either i drink beer yeah people <laughs> <laughs> um so we so what happened was one of the younger missionaries who could barely speak russian left the the, the um, compartment to go to the bathroom so you had the kupeni the private compartment yeah with the, like four beds mm-hmm. and the window it was yeah it's just the four of us and he leaves, and he's gone too long. You know that moment when you yeah. realize, like, oh, he's been gone too long. Something's, Something's happened. Something's going on. And so I walk out, and a, a little ways down the hallway in the train, he is pinned against the wall by basically a drunk, out-of-shape version of Ivan Drago from uh, Rocky IV. <laughs> like, just this huge, hulking, blonde Russian guy with a, a, an arm on either side of this poor missionary, like, pinning him <laughs> to the wall. And so I kind of sidle up and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And he's like, I heard you guys singing God Bless America. You guys are Americans and you guys are out here spying on us. And I was like, oh. And I managed um, to get the guy to kind of like focus on me. And the the other missionary like slipped away. And um, I had this kind of weird conversation with him where he's like, you're not – are you scared of me? You don't look like you're scared. And like, of course I'm terrified, but I'm like, Oh, why would I be scared? You know, you and I are friends, you know, we're just getting to know each other. Yeah, and he's, let's he's established the friendship. And he, he's wasted. And eventually I talk my, like just talking. It's always funny when you like, uh, you get in those situations, all of a sudden your language skills go like way up. Like, yeah. I'm just like talking oh. like a natural Russian, just like super sharp <laughs> focus. Yeah. And so we get back into the, Compartment. We get away from him, uh, feel like everything's on the other side of it. And one by one, the missionaries start getting off the train because they're getting off on at different cities along the route before where I'm going. And so for about the last 20 hours on the train, it's just me in this compartment um, with this drunk guy in the compartment next to us. Okay. And I guess I should mention that on a mission, I'd be probably the same for your mission, but like there's a big no... No sex, no masturbation, no yeah. anything. Oh, like yeah. complete oh. and utter celibacy. Yeah, not even with yourself. It's, yeah, it's all off limits. So I am, I am one year into my mission. I have not had a conscious orgasm <laughs> for a year. <laughs> plenty of, plenty of midnight. Uh, yeah, because it's it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Some way. But um, I'm on the train in this room, and all of a sudden the sound starts coming from the compartment where the drunk guy is and he has taken his stereo and put it to the wall and is now playing horrible uh, techno music, which is everywhere in Russia. It's just rife with horrible techno music, except for this techno music in the mix has sound effects from a porn. So it's just women orgasming in the techno just like uh, uh, like but like repeated at a fast beat with the rhythm of the yeah and and like it'll be like just one sound for like a couple measures but then it'll be like a phrase for a couple measures and then it'll like sandwich two things and then the song ends and there's another song with like more porno sounds and then the cd ends and he has the cd on repeat so it starts playing again and i'm in my compartment and at first i'm like at first i think it's funny Sure. Then I think it's annoying, and then <laughs> it starts the to get to me. Comes and then knocking. all of a sudden, I realize I'm in a compartment all by myself. There's nobody around, and I basically have porno sounds coming through the wall. And 
I don't like to I don't like to be graphic, but I will say I get very aroused oh, at this you, point. You can you can say that on this. I podcast. get a, I get a full I get I get the kind of erection that feels like your your penis is trying to jump off your body. Like okay. it's just all of my blood goes there, and I well you're what 19, 20 years 20 old. years old twenty red years blooded, old red blooded yeah. male. Yeah, you're you're. Male, you're you've been this virginal yeah. sheltered life, and all of a sudden, sex noises are coming into your train compartment. And suddenly, this is an issue because I was so I was really terrified of messing up my mission because yeah. to me, serving my mission was going to be the thing that finally made it so I believed in my religion. You know, okay. I was going to go and do this mission. I was going to come home and and just all of a sudden know that Mormonism was true finally, and all those doubts that I'd been wrestling with were going to go away. Yeah. But that wasn't going to happen if I was a disobedient missionary. So it was really, really important to me not to mess up. But yeah. here I am in a situation where it's basically like leaving a heroin addict like alone with heroin in a closed room. Here's like some, here's some needles. Here's it's, yeah, we're it's just it's starting to become overpowering. So I'm like, I start to panic a little bit and I look around and on either side of the window are like two like, oh shit handles that are like in a car. Right. Um, and there's a little table yeah. right if the under train the... gets jarred or stops suddenly, yeah. you grab onto them. And there's a little table right under the window. So I lay back on the table and I, and I put my hands out and I grab the handles. So I literally look like Jesus on the cross, just like lying <laughs> backwards. I like to say, <laughs> because I was on my back, I traveled across the Siberian tundra, uh, uh, you call those things sundial-esque because i just had one protrusion going straight up and that would be a really cool time elapsed video <laughs> yeah. for somebody to have taken and i so you uh, just lay there i just laid there and i laid there for hours like until the train ride ended i just digging my like fingernails into my hands just being like no nah, not gonna let go and the music is still going the whole time yeah i mean it it stopped a couple hours before I got, but I mean, it went for, it probably went for five hours or something. Wow. Like it was crazy. So I like to talk about that. That's the time I got a rock hard, solid testimony. Nice. <laughs> Very cool story. Polly, my dog just wanted to uh, get in on the end of that. He's affirming your testimony. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I, I, I hope that story inspires your listeners to, I don't know, find techno with porno sounds in it. <laughs> That's what I would or, be Googling Or maybe after just this. develop a more healthy attitude towards sexuality. Yeah. Or visit beautiful Russia. But thank you for being on our on our podcast, Kirk. I hope you can come back again very soon. Absolutely. Have me any time. I'd, I'd, I'd love to tell you more crazy stories. Спасибо тебе большое, братан. Спасибо большое. Увидимся. Увидимся, конечно. хочет, значит, что ты делаешь все правильно. Если девочка хочет, значит, значит, ты пацан нереально понравился. Oh man, that was great. I'm glad you had that interview with Kirk. We're gonna definitely have to get him back on sometime. Yeah, Kirk's he's a solid guy. I like Kirk. Uh, it sounds like he and us kind of grew up similar, and obviously we have similarities in going to Russia as missionaries. We you know, he was there with the Mormon church, us with the Baptists. I'm guessing he probably grew up a little bit sheltered or at least a little bit fundamentalist about things and, and you know, didn't think about sex or wasn't allowed to think about sex. And I know that was the case for me and, and probably the same for you. You grew up similar to that, right, Dave? Yeah, absolutely. I think when someone is forced to hide their sexuality you know, the, the, the good parts even about that as well. There, I think people establish tendencies that are unhealthy. I think we had some of that in ourselves. When we were in Russia, I think one of the unhealthy things that I had was I would go out and kiss girls all the time. <laughs> you know, we weren't having sex when we were out in Russia. That's super healthy. Kissing well, girls, that's, that's I don't know. Great. I mean, in the, in the way that we were doing it, and we talked about this before in, in using some of the power dynamics of being of being an American, oh, I, right. I was I think abusing abusing some of that. Yeah, taking advantage of your yeah. of your privileged yeah. privileged position. And we did the same thing, you know, when it came to drinking or smoking. We were always trying to hide it, and I think we we went too far. No, you're right. We yeah, I mean, we went overboard because we we couldn't do it our whole lives. All of a sudden, we're in Estonia and and we're doing whatever we want. So yeah, we went yeah, yeah we went a little too far. One of the things that I remember doing and. I kind of laugh at it some, but it was really a stupid thing. Uh, do you remember? I, I would sometimes draw like I, I called it like 
social terrorism and I'd draw like penises and vaginas and I'd actually make them into like monsters. Do you remember that? And and I'd and then I'd I would just kind of put them out like on a on a bench or something and wouldn't you put them face face down so some like you'd put it on a yeah. A three by five card face down so someone would have to pick it up and look at a big vagina monster. Pick it up and turn it over and see this lewd drawing. And uh and, and so, you know, though I think some of that came from just this unhealthy view of sex and the unhealthy view of the body. We, we had friends that did that too. You know, we had, remember the, the guys in the band? From our home church uh, back in California. Yeah. They showed us some pic- pictures they drew when their band went on tour, they had a whole notebook yeah. of dick drawings. Very like if, if anyone's seen the movie super bad, yeah, this... it was that kind of thing. Like just these bizarre, ridiculous putting penises into everything. <laughs> and like really... <laughs> Really well done drawings too, though. But but very sophomoric and very immature. You know, those are those are some of the things. You know, when you're when you're repressed, when you're told to push all this stuff down, these things come out in these inappropriate ways, and those are inappropriate ways. And I, I think I think you find you know in a totalitarian authority, things are going to come out in inappropriate ways, and that builds a a culture of rape, a rape culture. Um, and and a culture of exploitation, and I think that was a little bit of what we saw after the authoritarian culture ended. Things were opened up, and it was just free reign, and and people took advantage of other people. Yeah, I mean, we talk about some of the stuff we did. It, it was all fairly just ridiculous, sophomoric. Thank God it didn't get to yeah to any extremes. But a lot of people who who grow up in very repressive cultures go to places that are much darker than than we ever went. Thank God. You have people who who get tempted in by by the by the frat boy culture, this culture of of, of violence, of domination, suppressed sexuality. I, th- I think it can tend to take yeah. more monstrous forms when it's been suppressed, and when people just don't don't get education. When someone spends their whole life, and they go through puberty, they become a, a sexual person, and they don't learn about things like consent, like sex education, like. Like even what what does the word consent mean? I don't remember ever hearing the word consent no, in our no, that church was, that upbringing. Just, it was like no, just don't all. do it and don't talk about it and just stay away from it. Yeah, it was like a non-issue, which is horrifying when you think that. I mean, we we all had this idea that nobody's ever going to have sex until they get married. I mean, fine, but nobody even learned that consent yeah. exists in marriage too. Like people can people can rape yeah. their spouse as well. And there was not not even the suggestion that that's something that should be like discussed and and prevented and and you have people who grew up like us uh, and go out and because they don't have education when they do become sexually active it's it's more likely that they won't be safe that they won't use protection that they won't know about consent uh, so lots of really dark stuff can happen when there's not information when when things are not openly discussed yeah. Some folklorists and uh, philosophers talk about the idea of monsters in folklore. Uh, there's a fantastic book that I, I think everyone should read. It's uh, W. Scott Poole is the author, Monsters in America. And it's a book about how every culture, the, the monster stories that they tell reflect the suppressed parts of that culture. So in this book, he actually he quotes the cultural critic uh, Grail Marcus talking about fairy tales and monster stories. He says they are parts of history because they don't fit the story a people wants to tell itself, survive only as haunts and fairy tales, accessible only as specters and Mm. spooks. Then the author himself, he describes monsters as the things that hide in history's dark places. Yeah. He says, master narratives are by definition lies and untruths. This is why we need to study monsters. They're the things hiding in history's dark places. Yeah. And so that's what happens when a natural part of the human experience is suppressed. It can become monstrous and can become some very dark things when when it's not discussed out in the open, in the light of day. Yeah. And that's important when, like what you said, when it comes to like sex education and everything. And it's kind of, it's up in the air where things going to go from now. Right. In in the U.S. and in Russia, we don't know where things are going. Yeah, both. You know, there's legislation happening in Russia that are, that are influencing the LGBTQ conversation over there and uh, oppressing people with different views than, than the government has. And that's the same, same here in the United States. Uh, you know, 
laws are being changed and uh, viewed in different ways. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in both countries, you've got a lot of new laws and proposed laws uh, that are aimed at restricting a lot of things, restricting the LGBT community, uh, restricting birth control, restricting yeah. women's rights. Um, it's a whole ongoing discussion. And depending on, on choices that are made in, in our countries and in every country, uh, some choices could be made that will have repercussions for generations yeah. of pushing things under the surface, suppressing things. And and those things are only going to come out in the, in the form of uh, folklore, of legends, of dirty limericks, of bathroom graffiti. Uh, whenever you don't have the open conversation, the topics, they're going to come out in some other way. And so it's better for us to sit down in the light of day and just talk about it like adults and be sensible rather than force people to suppress a natural part of who they are. Yeah. It's an ongoing discussion. It's for every country, the question of which version of our national history is going to come out on top and be defined as the official version. That's always an ongoing debate. And which version of a country are we going to have? One that is open about sexual things or one that represses them? Yeah. Well, we're going to wrap it up here. Hope you enjoyed this discussion. I sure enjoyed uh, the interview with Kirk. Uh, thanks for, for bringing that to us, Dave. Yeah, we'll have to get him on again. Yeah, for sure. He's, he's got some fantastic stories from his time in Russia. Really uh, just amazing far out stories. Looking forward to it. So how about you all? How, uh, what do you feel about this topic? Um, leave us a comment in our social media. You can find us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. Did you grow up in a sexually repressed culture or were you, were you more open about it? And how does that shape your views about sex today? Hit us up on our email, trwlpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll see you next time. Today's episode of To Russia With Love was brought to you by Soviet Union condoms. You can find them at any pharmacy in SSSR, but remember, they do not exist. Спасибо за внимание. Please, thank you.